Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here preaching the word this morning. Uh, Today, I want to spend time looking at this passage that we heard read for us out of Mark. It's a passage that many of us are familiar with. Some of us grew up hearing, and I think it has a lot to say to us today. So my goal this morning is that we would come away understanding three things. First, what the passage meant in its original context, and then what it means in light of all of Scripture, and then what it means for us today. We're looking at these two stories that are two of the most common stories in all of the gospel accounts, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the story of Jesus walking on water. Maybe you grew up with these stories. If, it's, if that's true of you, it's also possible that these stories have lost a little bit of their luster. Of course, I don't mean that we stop believing in them, but I think for many of us, after we marvel at these stories, we don't really know what to do with them. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That's, that's amazing. But what does it mean for my life? Jesus walks on the water. That's incredible. But what does that mean for me? My prayer this morning is that God would take something familiar and make it fresh to us. That he would take something known and make it seem new. That he would take something common and make it holy. And I have an ask of you this morning. I want you to commit to something as well. I want you to commit to being curious. What do curious people do? They ask questions. They make observations. Now, it's possible you've encountered a kind of curiosity related to the Bible that takes one point and extrapolates it out for wildly out-of-context applications. I'm not asking you to do that. Rather, we're going to use our curiosity and questions to help us discover what Mark and the Spirit are trying to say to us today. So let's start with our first question. What does this passage mean in its original context? To answer that question, we just have to start with a very, very broad question, which is, what am I reading? Well, you say, I'm reading the Bible. That's good. We're in the same book. But something that makes this book unique from any other book is that this book is a collection of books spanning a wide variety of genres. So as we open up the passage today, let's ask, what are we reading? Is it poetry? Is it an ancient prophecy? Is it law code? Well, no, it's it's a narrative. It's a story. Is it a fairy tale? No, it's a historical account based on eyewitness reports about the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But is it simply a history book? Well, no, that's not quite right either. If we were recording historical events simply for the sake of history, I don't know that we would need four different gospel accounts, except perhaps for redundancy. So what is Mark trying to do for us this morning through these stories that we grew up with and know so well? Well, if we look at other gospel authors, we might get an idea. Luke, for example, writes his account with eyewitness testimony. He writes at the beginning of his book 
to a patron named Theophilus and says that he's written this down so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Or the gospel according to John near the end in chapter 20, verse 30, John writes, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life by the power of his name. So the authors are giving us historical information, but they're not doing it for the sake of history. They want you to align yourselves with Jesus. I've heard the gospel accounts described as a persuasive documentary drama. If that sounds funny, that sort of uh, narrative has found a resurgence in our own day through things like a true crime drama. A few years ago, my wife and I watched a film on Netflix about flat earthers, people who believe that for various reasons, the world is flat instead of a sphere. It followed a collection of people who were finding community with one another and sharing theories and conducting experiments together. It was a documentary because it followed the lives of individual characters. It was a drama because it shed light on real life and relationships. And it was persuasive because as the film goes on, it becomes more and more apparent that the filmmakers have no intention in trying to validate flat earth theory. They had an agenda too. So if the gospel according to Mark is a persuasive docudrama, then that means that the events that he presents and the order that he presents them in and the words that he uses to describe those events all have significance. And paying attention to those things will help us to uncover Mark's motivation in sharing this story this way. So what is Mark trying to convince us to believe? Let's start by just outlining the story. There are a couple ways you could do it, but here's one way. You have three sets of three events. In set number one, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat and they cross the sea. Then they get to the other side where a crowd is waiting and Jesus has compassion on the crowd and serves them by performing miracles. Then in the middle story, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray and his disciples get in a boat and cross the sea. Then a storm comes up and the disciples are making no progress. Then Jesus comes to them walking on the water. They fear, but Jesus calms their fears and enters the boat. Then to finish up the passage, Jesus and his disciples finish crossing the sea together. They get to the other side where a giant crowd is waiting for them. And then Jesus serves the crowd by performing miracles. Now, in that summary of events, do you notice anything interesting? The story begins and ends kind of the same, doesn't it? The details are different, but in general, Jesus and his disciples cross the sea, meet a crowd, and Jesus serves the crowd. And if we look a little closer, Mark actually uses some similar words to describe the crowds in both places. So look at verse 33, for example. Mark says in verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And then if you jump down to verses 54 and 55, 
Mark says there again, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the, the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. You don't have to be a, a Bible scholar or a pastor to see some really obvious connections here. In both places, Mark says that the crowds recognized Jesus and that they ran to Jesus from wherever they are. Jesus does a lot of ministry to large crowds, and it's not unusual for him to get in a boat and travel from place to place. However, there are only two places in Mark's whole gospel account where he says that people recognize Jesus. And they're both here in chapter 6, the beginning and the ending of the passage that we read this morning. Recognizing and running. That's interesting. We have that in that first set. We have that in that second set. Do we have that in the middle set? Well, no. Instead of crowds, we find the apostles, Jesus' closest followers. Instead of recognizing Jesus, they see him walking on water and think it's a ghost. And instead of running to him, they're scared stiff. Mark writes in verse 50, But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And Mark tells us something at the end of that story that should pique our curiosity. Jesus tells them not to be afraid. But then Mark adds in that they were utterly astounded because they did not understand about the loaves. Now, hold on for just a minute. What does Jesus walking on water have to do with loaves? Why should that story cause them to be so perplexed and confounded in this story? What's the connection between these two? These stories are all about recognizing Jesus. The crowds do it at the beginning and the end of the story, but the disciples who travel and serve with Jesus fail to recognize him for who he really is. They see the miracle of the bread multiplied, but they miss what the miracle says about the miracle worker. This becomes apparent when Jesus passes them on the sea. Their hearts are hard, and it leaves them confounded. All right, how are we doing? Good? We've been chasing down the question, what is Mark trying to convince us to believe about Jesus? We can see that Jesus is the one who multiplied bread and walked on water, and the disciples didn't have eyes to see Jesus for who he really was. And the question is, do we? To help us see this morning, I want to add one more layer into the mix here. We've taken a look at what the passage means in its original context, but I want to look at what it means in light of all of scripture. I believe that scripture is breathed out by God, that what we hold in our hands are the very words of God to us. And God chose to communicate to us through words, and his spirit brought us his word through the work of ordinary men filled with the spirit. The work they produced is beautiful in its style, in its structure, and in the way it is connected with the rest of the scriptures. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active. These words are meant to be read and reread over the course 
of a lifetime. And every time you come to them, there's something more that they have to say. There's an old quote that's been attributed to a few different people that says, Scripture is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. I'd like to take a moment to explore some of the depths of Scripture with you, if I might. Now, if you're an Israelite, then that means that you've grown up with the story of the Exodus seared into your memory. This is the story of how your people became a nation, and it's filled with incredible stories of deliverance and miracles. And the man at the center of that story is Moses. That's right. Now, if you grew up in church, or I mean, even if you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, then you're likely familiar with the major points of Moses' story. He was a Hebrew, but grew up in Pharaoh's household. He fled Egypt after killing an Egyptian and lived in the wilderness. One day he meets God, the great I am, in a burning bush. God directs him to perform great signs to deliver his people from the hard-hearted Pharaoh, which culminates in the story of Passover. Moses leads a great multitude out of slavery to the sea, where God parts the waters so the people can pass through. The people grumble and complain, so God gives them bread from heaven in the wilderness. They come to a mountain, and Moses goes up to meet with God. In the Old Testament passage that we read this morning, in one of his trips up the mountain, Moses asks God to reveal his glory, and God makes all of his glory pass by Moses and declares his name and his character to him. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about Moses, but at the end of his life, Moses prays that God would raise up another leader to lead the people of Israel, and God appoints Joshua to lead in Moses' place. Now, what if I told you that Mark has the story of Moses on his mind while he tells us the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on the water? What if I told you that certain images or themes or ideas from Moses' life are peppered through our passage today? I'd like to show you that if I can. The very first clue we get that Mark might be trying to take us back to Exodus is the, lo- is the location. Twice in our passage today, Jesus calls the place where they're going a desolate place. What's a desolate place? It's empty. It's barren. It's a wilderness. Most of the Exodus story takes place in a wilderness. Now, That's not enough of a connection in itself, but let's just keep going. Let's note that. Next, we're told in verse 34 that Jesus has compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's an interesting phrase, sheep without a shepherd. It's actually used four times in the Old Testament, and the very first time it's used is Moses asking God to raise up another leader so that, as he says in Numbers twenty-seven seventeen, the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. God answers Moses' prayer by raising up a man named Yeshua. If you take the Hebrew name Yeshua and translate it into English, we get the name Joshua. But if you take that same name and translate it into Hebrew and then into Greek and then into English, you get the name Jesus. God answers Moses' prayer by raising up one Yeshua, and later he will fully answer it by raising up another. 
But the parallels continue. Jesus is in the wilderness with a great crowd of people. And what does he do? He provides bread for them in the wilderness, just as God provided bread for the Israelites. And then what happens? Jesus sends his disciples out to sea, but Jesus goes up onto a mountain by himself to meet with God. Who else met with God on a mountain? That's right, Moses did. But what about walking on the water? Moses never walked on water. For this, we can look for clues in places like Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, the psalmist is reminding themselves of all God's mighty works, including the parting of the sea. Listen to this retelling of the parting of the sea from, Ex- uh, I'm sorry, from Psalm 77, verses 16 through 20. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 77 pictures God parting the sea in a great storm. And it tells us in verse 19 that his way was through the sea, but his footprints were not seen. Or in Hebrew, they were not known. In other words, in the parting of the sea, God was there walking on the sea. We just couldn't see him. And now here in Mark, a great windstorm has swept up and Jesus walks on the water, yet his disciples don't recognize him. Now, Mark tells us in verse 48 that Jesus, quote, meant to pass by. Why would Jesus do that? I mean, the whole point is that he was coming to them on the sea because he saw that they were making painful headway. It doesn't really make sense unless you've got these Exodus connections on your mind. Three times in our Old Testament reading this morning, God tells Moses that he will make all his glory pass by Moses. Moses wanted to see God's glory. And this is how God told Moses that he would reveal himself, having his glory pass by. Moses gets a glimpse of this, but the disciples see the real thing. This is echoed again when the disciples cower in the boat, but Jesus says in verse 50, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Literally in Greek, Jesus says, Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. That phrase, the I am, is the name that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and again on the mountain when his glory passes by. Now, maybe any one of these connections on their own isn't enough to convince us, but when seen together, it becomes really apparent what Mark is trying to do. In about 24 hours, Jesus repeats in some way the most significant moments in the Exodus story and in Moses' life. Mark has saturated this passage with hints in order to show us who Jesus really is, not just a man, but the great I am come to earth. And the last connection, the closing one that seals the deal for me and leads me into application, is what Mark says at the end when the disciples are utterly astounded. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts 
were hardened. Do you remember who else in the Exodus story has a heart that was hardened? It was Pharaoh, the enemy of God's people who refused to acknowledge or recognize God. Mark is saying that in this moment, the disciples' hearts are just like Pharaoh when God put his glory on display before him. So what do we do with this passage? I hope this morning I've been able to show you what's happening in this passage and to expand your view of it, to marvel how God is at work in these pages to reveal the identity of Jesus. But what does it mean for us now? This passage tells us a lot about Jesus, but it also tells us a lot about ourselves. To start, I think maybe we can exercise a little bit more grace towards the disciples. It's really easy to read the miracle of Jesus multiplying bread in the wilderness and to think, come on, how could the disciples not have understood who Jesus was after that? But if we look at the context, we see things like verse 31, which tells us that Jesus tells them to come away and rest because they had been so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. The disciples get in the boat with Jesus and they think, this is finally going to be the time that we've waited for, just us and Jesus alone in the wilderness. And when they get to the other side, what do they find? Instead of a quiet retreat, there's a crowd of 5,000 men, not including women and children. Mark tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. But how did the disciples feel? Their hearts were hard, and it's not hard to imagine why. Jesus performs a miracle and gives bread and fish to the crowd, but the disciples seem to be so anxious to send the people home that they miss the splendor of the miracle. They just want to rest. And maybe Jesus senses this, and that's why he sends them off by themselves across the sea while he goes and dismisses the crowds. I don't know when the disciples thought they would see Jesus again, but as long as people weren't following them, maybe they could get some rest. Except that they couldn't. A windstorm sweeps up. They spend all night rowing against the wind, trying to make progress, but making none. Mark tells us that Jesus comes walking to them in the fourth watch of the night, which is between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m. Imagine you're already tired, already exhausted, and then you've got to row all night against a strong wind. The disciples see a figure coming to them toward the water. They freak out naturally, and it doesn't help that they're physically and emotionally exhausted. Jesus says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, the wind stops, and the disciples are perplexed by the man who walks on waves and calms storms. Why are they utterly astonished? Mark tells us because their hearts are hardened. It's really easy for us to forget God when life doesn't go the way that we expect. When we need something and we don't get it, that's the test, isn't it? Do we trust God to provide for our need or does our heart grow hard? The Gospel of John adds an interesting line to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus sees the crowds, he asks one of his disciples, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And then John, the author, adds, he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. 
Jesus knew he was going to provide, but he asks anyway in order to reveal what is in the heart. In our passage today in Mark, the disciples actually face, you could say, three tests. First is the test of the crowd. How do they respond when they expect that they're finally going to get some rest and time alone with Jesus, only to be met by a sprawling crowd? Second, there's the test of the food. How will they respond when Jesus says, you get them something to eat? Third is the test of the storm. How will the disciples, ragged with exhaustion, respond when faced with this mighty windstorm? In every test, what matters far more than their situation is what's happening in their hearts. Does their heart open up to Jesus in trust, or does it turn in and grow hard? Now, I wish that it wasn't so easy to think of examples from this in my own life. Having two young kids and a full-time job doesn't leave me a lot of time to write sermons. My usual time is either before 6 a.m. or after 8 p.m., and I'm really not a night owl. I do have a dedicated block of time on Friday afternoons. I'm off work, the kids are napping. So on Friday, I thought to myself, this is the time, finally able to finish up this message And that's when I learned that our car's battery was dead. Our one car. (laughs) So I had to troubleshoot the car battery. And uh, thanks to Alex Teen, in about an hour, we were back up and running. I've still got some nap time to get some writing done. And that's when Elliot, my three-year-old, wakes up with a nasty cough. That night, both kids get to bed at a decent time. But then our one-year-old stays up crying for longer than he ever has. It's really easy, even natural, to get frustrated in that situation. I I have to have this, I think. But my frustration actually says a lot more about my heart than it does about my circumstance. It reveals that I don't think there's enough. I forget that the God of the Exodus is the same God that walked among us as Jesus. And Jesus promised his disciples I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm not confident in my ability to respond in faith every time. That's the truth. I get frustrated and fall victim to this scarcity mindset that says there's not enough. Enough time, enough food, enough rest, enough strength. And the good news this morning is that even though the disciples failed their three tests, Jesus passed every one of his. When faced with a massive crowd, Jesus' natural heart posture was one of compassion. When faced with a shortage of food, Jesus could look at five loaves and two fish and say, that's enough. When faced with a stormy, chaotic ocean, Jesus could walk on the waves as on dry ground. And in the greatest test of his obedience, Jesus could willingly go to the cross for sinners like you and me with a heart posture that said, not my will, but yours be done. This passage today is not a condemnation of our blindness. It's an invitation for us to recognize Jesus. 
God knows our hard hearts, and he will reveal them to us, not to judge us, but in order that we would be drawn to trust in Jesus. Though our hearts are often hard, our Savior and Lord brings all of his glory near. He does not wait for us to reform ourselves before he comes. Instead, the God of the Exodus, the Exodus steps into our chaotic lives and speaks words that are forever true regardless of circumstance. And if you've come from a week where you've felt like there isn't enough, I want you to hear the words of Jesus today. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and what it reveals to us about Jesus. Our hearts are often hard. We admit that. But Father, we want to see We want what we believe about Jesus to change the way that we face unexpected trials in our lives. And that only happens by the work of your spirit to open up our eyes and our hearts. So like Paul this morning, Father, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Remind us, Father, that when we are weak, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Our hope is not in ourselves, but it is in Jesus Christ, who loves us, died for us, and rose from the grave, that we may have new life. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen.